Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 29 and part three of what should have been a two-part episode, but wound up becoming three. Yes. And just because of a plethora of knowledge, I guess you could I guess you could say just dropped in my lap, basically, is what turned this into a third part episode. This is probably gonna be the one time I issue a trigger warning. This entire episode is gonna have a heavy involvement of details of child death, so if that's gonna bother you, it might be best you do not listen to this episode. It's been 96 years. It might sound like a cheesy spin-off from the famous line from James Cameron's Titanic, but after 96 years of tears and sorrow, the tremors can still be felt through the grounds for miles from May 18th, 1927. 96 years, the sound of shattering glass and crumbling bricks can still be heard. 96 years, when ash billowing into the sky blocked out the sun. 96 years, the smell of smoke muted the sweet smell of lilacs on a spring day. It's been 96 years since a madman silenced the laughter of the children of Bath Township eagerly awaiting summer break in 1927. While those surrounding the Kehoe Farm are trying to extinguish the fires that have engulfed the majority of the buildings of the Kehoe Farm, and not knowing if anyone is inside, O.H. Bush, as he was only identified as a foreman for Consolidated Power that was nearby, he and his men would enter the house of the Kehoe through an open window looking for any survivors. With no response from anyone inside, as they called out, they decided to save what they could from the Kehoe's before fire consumed the entire house. As Buck and his men are shoving chairs, tables, and a Davenport and what else they could find out windows, Buck would be shocked that he would end up finding a cache of dynamite in the corner of the living room. Without even thinking about the consequences, he scooped up the dynamite up by the armful and passed it out to his men outside. With the room filling with smoke, Buck would finally order his men outside of the house. Three more of the Kehoe's neighbors would show up due to seeing the farm on fire to help render aid wherever they can. One of the linemen would come running out of the house, yelling, My God, there's enough dynamite in there to blow up the county. While across the road, at the hearts, they are trying to save their own barn as the embers from Kehoe's fires are drifting across the street and landing on their barn. Luckily for them, their barn roof would still be damp from the early morning thunderstorms that had just passed through. Lulu Hart would end up yelling to anyone that could hear between the two farms, The schoolhouse is blowed! Buck and his crew would quickly realize that they would be needed at the school more than they are here. George Hall would think of his own three children that had attended the school. He and the linemen would shift their focus onto the school. At approximately 8.30 a.m., 15 minutes before hell would be unleashed on Bath, Frank Smith and the repairman only named as Mr. Harrington would enter the school's pump house so Harrington can start his work. And without any warning, at 8.45 a.m., a deafening roar filled the basement, knocking Harris and Harrington against the wall. Frank Smith, being able to keep solid footing, would ask, God's sakes, what happened? As one of the two 500-pound caches of explosives would detonate under the north wing of Bath Consolidated School. With enough force to cause the walls to jump four feet in the air and come crashing back down on the foundation. This would end up causing the second floor and the roof to collapse on the first floor 
and the outside walls to buckle outward from their original construction. Followed by silence other than the debris hitting the ground and then the sudden screams of those trapped inside would fill the air. Miss Guntikus turned the page. The elf touched the golden apple. As his fingers caught around the fruit, an enormous roar shook the building. The western wall of her classroom would explode inward, smashing the empty desk that sat waiting for their assigned students. If she had not given it to her children earlier, they would have been crushed under the rubble of this wall. That story saved their lives that day. As this bomb detonated, first grade class of Bernice Sterling is doing their morning exercises as they are marching around their classroom before they are tossed like ragdolls, slamming into walls, crashing through windows. As the rest of the school was rocked by the explosion during final exams for seniors taking place in the assembly hall, being conducted by Superintendent Hawk, he would notice lights swinging wildly before one broke loose and smashing as it hits the ground. As Hazel Weatherby's classroom comes crashing down, she would do her best to shield her students, pulling two of them into her arms. Not only did this bombing have major side effects on the schoolhouse, it did the neighborhood homes as well. Windows of nearby homes would be blown out, and the sound of the explosion would be heard for miles around Bath. Dottie Cushman would recall that when drawing water for, for his horses, they would become spooked by the thunderous sound causing his, horses, his horse to rear back and leaving their eyes filled with terror. It was louder and more intense than the thunderstorms that came through that night before. Several other farmers experienced the same thing, causing some horses to break free from their plows. Mrs. LaHall Warner, that lived just one block away, would be pelted by glass from her porch window that she was hanging new curtains for that morning. She would end up running outside after this happened and unfortunately would witness the roof collapse on the north wing. Sophomore Sylvester Barnard would be heaved out of a window from the blast. Even though hitting the ground with a heavy thud, he managed to pick himself up. Witnessing the bodies strewn in every direction in front of the school, some were dead, some dying, and some lying in pain before he would pass out. Principal Huggett and the seniors would feel the church next door be rocked by the blast. Empty pews of the church would begin to roll over while Huggett steadied himself on a nearby desk getting his bearings as he and two students run from the building, seeing a cloud of dust where the North Wing once stood. Josephine Cushman, that had told her brother earlier this morning, is picking flowers in the woods with her friends when they heard a loud boom causing the trees to rattle. Realizing it was from the direction of the school, they would head in this direction. As they rounded the corner of the nearby gas station, an unknown man would shout to them, Hurry up! The school has blown up! Albert Detloff, that had encountered Kehoe earlier that morning, would just be starting his day at the blacksmith shop that he worked. At the time of the blast, he had thought a car that was being worked on by one of the mechanics in the shop had slipped off its lift. Instead of finding a shop full of men working, it was empty. What is going on here? He would call out, but would not get an answer from anybody. He would then run to the front side of the building, finding a man shouting, The school is blown up! and immediately think of his daughter, Marcia, who would be attending home economics as her first class of the day. Evelyn Paul, the home economics teacher, would see a blinding flash accompanied by a deafening blast. And in a single moment, the classroom would be dark and filled with dust. In the dark, her students would ask, What is it? Almost as if they were crying. Like most, she was unsure what had happened and soon realized she was impaled by a large wood splinter through her shoulder. 
Cleo Clayton would be, would self-rescue himself by leaping through an open window and running to the front line of the school where he was safe. Willet Whitney realized the school was a disaster. He hurried from the wreck of what was left of the North Wing, which looked as if a giant hand had smashed it, and tried to find somebody in charge. He would end up finding Hawk maintaining his professionalism as hell was thrust upon Bath, urging the students trapped on the roof not to jump to wait for ladders. Go and get some ladders and help those scholars off the roof, Hawk would tell him. Without question, he did as he was told and would run into Arthur Woodman and assist him with a ladder. Mrs. Warner, finally reaching the school after witnessing the destruction from her home, would find Superintendent Huck still trying to bring order to the chaos that was laid out before him. He would urge her to also bring ladders and axes as he was still trying to convince the high school students not to jump and to just wait. This would more than likely be the best solution for them to come down instead of jumping to the shed roof below them and then to the ground as it was 12 to 14 feet from the shed roof to where they were on the school roof. William Cressman would make his leap and realizing that the roof wasn't big enough to hold two, he quickly made his second jump hitting the ground with a thud. As other students made the same jump crashing down around him, some would break their legs making these jumps. The body of eight-year-old Doris Johns could be seen hanging by her heels from a second floor window and due to the stairs to her classroom being destroyed, she would not be able to be reached until hours later when a ladder long enough to reach her was found. Sarah Scholes would volunteer to take her three blocks on her last walk home from school. Frank Smith would finally get his bearings on where he was at after the blast in the basement and darted up a staircase along with Harrington. Here they would see the children of Miss Sterling and Miss Gunticus's room lined up as if they were practicing a fire drill. Frank Smith and Harrington would escort these children to safety through the south door of the school. The classroom where Eva Gubbins was giving her 6th graders a geography test now lays in ruins smashed by the classroom above. In a haze, she would come to realize she was trapped by a concrete beam crushing her legs and radiators pressing into her back. As her eyes adjusted to the darkness, she would soon realize she was face to face by mere inches of a schoolboy with his eyes frozen in time, realizing he was dead. Unable to look away due to her head being pinned by the rubble, she would do what she can not to look at his death stare as her screams would join those still trapped and injured. Now with the students from the roof safely on the ground, Emery Huck would start digging through the rubble to find anyone alive. The bodies of those whose lights were extinguished too early would start to line the school's lawn by the, that came to rescue those trapped. As other children would emerge like moles from digging themselves out and transition from moles to ghosts roaming the grounds from being covered in the dust from the walls coming down. Huck would find one of these students and gingerly pick him up and carry him to the telephone exchange and place him on a couch that someone had left on the front porch. And Huck would then return back to the school. This student was Carlton Hollister, a fifth grader that would have been on the first floor if the class above didn't have a test that day. It is also believed that Carlton Hollister was the first alive but injured victim pulled from the rubble. Homes became hospitals. Bedsheets became bandages. The women of Bath would focus on making sandwiches and coffee for the men to keep their strength up for the rescue efforts. Strong backs and determination would replace cranes as workers repealed back the roof finding two boys huddled together as their terror is replaced by relief as they run free from the rubble. If these two boys were found alive, that means more could be found. Brick by brick, beam by beam, Slowly, the rescuers make their way through, realizing just at a hand's distance would be the body of a child. As their work continued, the workers would prepare to move him to the growing morgue on the lawn. 
where parents could be heard screaming in distress or relief when reunited with their child. But suddenly, the trapped body sat up, rubbing his eyes and let out a phew in relief as he ran off across the debris field and into the crowd before anyone got his name. Even with 17-year-old Lenora Babcock inside the telephone exchange calling every surrounding town for help, the chief security officer of the Fisher Body Plant in Flint, Michigan would also be, end up calling his superiors and those of REO Motors to send every man that you can to Bath, making them teammates for a day and not competitors in the automotive industry. Even with only 15 minutes have gone by, that this might have felt like an eternity, unknowing to those hoping to find their children still alive in the twisted mess of the north wing of Bath Consolidated, were completely unaware that the world's worst demon was shortly on his way. Job Slight, standing near the roadway, would see a pickup truck driving east, thinking this was Monty Ellsworth making his return trip with the ropes that he went back for at home. He slowly realized it was Kehoe. What on earth is he doing? As Kehoe waved and headed east. Farmer Homer Jennison would also interact with Kehoe, but Homer wouldn't recognize the driver that nodded in respect to him as he passed. Passing Job Slate, he would ask if that was Kehoe, as he could see the farm ablaze in the distance. Slate would reply that he think it was. Monty Ellsworth would actually be driving south from the school and then west towards home. He would pass Kehoe driving east into town as he waved to Monty as they passed each other. Ellsworth would recall that Kehoe gave him a big strange grin that he could see both rows of his teeth. Dart Lang and John Snively of Consolidated Power would show up to help replace those exhausted from digging at a fever pace those still alive. His fellow lineman John Curtis, that had been on the scene already, stopped them. If you haven't got a strong heart, you better not go up there. Lang would reply for the both of them, somebody's gotta go up there. Hot Rail Wing would shout to Snively as they both dove into a ditch to avoid from being hit by a speeding truck. What is the matter with that man? Is he crazy? He asked Snively as they watched the truck swerve to the right and into the school. What these two men didn't know that this truck belonged to Kehoe. And just as fast as the truck appeared moments later, at 9.12am, it would be gone in a flash as the smoke rose from the street. Different variations on what happened next 30 minutes later after Kehoe had pulled in with his truck at the school. What most likely did happen has been pieced together by eyewitness accounts and news reports. When Kehoe arrived on the, on the school grounds, he called Huck over to his truck, where he would then hurry over in a natural reaction and place his foot on the running board of Kehoe's truck and begin to inform him on what has happened as he is one of the members of the school board. It was unlikely that Huck knew about the fire at the farm going on at the same time. Huck would ask Kehoe for his truck to haul poles and ropes for the rescue efforts that are already underway. All right, I'll take you with me, Kehoe would tell him. And maybe by his own intuition, Huck would then ask Kehoe, You know something about this, don't you? Minor Gates Coulter remembers seeing Kehoe pull some sort of gun, thinking he was going to shoot Huck. Some said it was a rifle, some said it was a pistol, but a shot was still fired inside the truck hitting the dynamite he had stashed away in his truck, causing it to explode, sending out a rain of shrapnel and gasoline in the air in several directions. This third and final explosion would end up killing Kehoe himself, Huck the school superintendent, Leno Smith, and Cleo Clayton, an 8th grader that survived the first explosion after he leaped from a window. The remains of Huck and Kehoe would be found 60 feet away from the truck lay smoldering. In the matter of what has been estimated to be 30 minutes total, Kehoe would end up taking the lives of 44 people and injuring 58. 
Today, Bath Township Massacre is still the largest loss of life due to violence at a school in American history. Eva Gubbins would finally be rescued 45 minutes later after she was located and rescue efforts had to build a frame to support the weight of the debris around her before they could remove the beam pinning her in place. At 10.20 a.m., Michigan Secret Service Chief Lyle Morse and his assistant would arrive at Bath. Like many others, he suspected this to be a boiler explosion until he had witnessed the carnage himself. With Kehoe's name swirling in the area for those arriving, as the man who bombed the school, D.B. Huffman, would find Morse and tell him about the box Kehoe had shipped off that morning to Lansing. The box that he had shipped off to Lansing was to Clyde Smith, the school's insurance man. Lyle Smith would get in contact with Smith to find out if he had received a box that day. Smith would tell him that he hasn't received anything yet. Finding this box would be paramount as the contents inside was not known. Nellie Cushman, still desperate to find her son Ralph, peered under the sheets covering the bodies of the lost children. Other parents doing the same thing, praying that they would not find what they are looking for. One father, exhausted from rescuing those still trapped, would unfortunately find his own son among the lost. Well, there's Billy, with nothing else to, for him to say or be done for his son. He would return to Ground Zero to help the others to keep other hopeful parents from having the same outcome as he just did. A mother searching for her own son lifted a sheet, finding a girl and not a boy. With the sunshine breaking through the dust, she would begin to notice the guy, the girl's eyes started to flutter. This was Josephine England, injured but not dead. He's not dead, he's alive, a voice would also be heard. Dean Sweet, first presumed dead by a neighbor, looked at him sorrowfully as he would begin to wiggle his toes. Dean would be taken to Lansing via a hearse as no ambulance was available at this time. As rescue efforts continued throughout the day, a woman could be seen in the bricks up to her waist. Still clinging onto two children nestled in her arms, this woman was Hazel Weatherby that originally shielded two students as the ceiling came down upon them. Hazel Weatherby would still cling to life until the second student was pulled from her arms by rescue workers. At 10.45 a.m., rescue efforts would be brought to a halt as Michigan State Police Captain John O'Brien and Ingham County Deputy discovered more dynamite hidden in the basement. Some of these explosives were concealed by plaster to hide it, inside conduit running the length of the entire ceiling packed full. Ernest Haldeman and Donald McNaughton of Michigan State Police would work together to disarm the pirates hall and dynamite with only their flashlights to see inside the basement. In spaces too small for them, 14-year-old Chester Sweet volunteered to enter these smaller spaces and disarm the dynamite for them. In total, 504 pounds of dynamite and pirates hall would be pulled out of the basement on May 18th. By that afternoon, people were showing up by their droves to descend on bath like locusts just to catch a glimpse of the horrific scene that was unfolding. Nine miles away in Lanesburg, Michigan, the station manager is checking the packages that were delivered but not yet picked up and would find a box addressed to Clyde Smith of Lansing, Michigan. Since this box was labeled to Lanesburg, it never reached Lansing terminate location. Morris and the detective William Watkins headed to Lanesburg to pick up the box. With the words high explosive, dangerous on this box, they would handle this box as if it was filled with fine crystals. It would be a slow 20 mile drive to Michigan State Police in Lansing as every bump in the road was watched. And after reaching Lansing without incident, Kehoe's package would be left outside overnight until the next day. Ralph Cushman that left that morning with such excitement telling his mother goodbye that he was going to behave himself that day in class and also did not want to be embarrassed by being seen with his older sister that morning. 
would be found dead still sitting in his desk in his classroom next to one of his fellow classmates. By the early morning of May 19th, no more lost or surviving children would be found. The following morning, Lyle Morse and T.E. Trombla, an inspector with the Explosives Unit of the Interstate Commission in Detroit, which is the precursor to the Department of Transportation, would begin to open Kehoe's package. As daylight seeped into the box, no bomb went off, but only a note and ledger books would be found inside. Dear Sir, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 more cents than my book showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary in order, number 118, dated November 18, 1925, the bank gained one more cent more over my books, making the bank account show 23 cents more than my books. Otherwise, I am sure you'll find my books exactly right. Sincerely yours, Andrew P. Kehoe. It was near perfect destruction of the Kehoe farm. The only building that was left was a hen house where the burned remains of Nellie Kehoe would be found the next day in a makeshift cart. She would be found by Michigan Highway Patrolman George Carpenter. Many have speculated that Kehoe bludgeoned her to death due to the fractures in her skull, but this is more than likely due to the heat of the fire turning her brain into gas, causing her skull to crack from, the, from expansion. Due to the turning to her skull and her bones, a clear-cut cause of death would never be determined. Surrounding Nellie's body would be silverware that seemed to be laid out in a ceremonial fashion. The silverware would be placed on her head and her chest. Alongside her body was a metal box that investigators had opened, and inside they would find earrings, an opal and diamond ring, a dozen teaspoons with the letter K stamped on the handle, and a pin for the Knights of the Maccabees, which is a social club through Michigan at this time. Also found in this box were their marriage license and bills. Nellie's hospital stays at St. Lawrence in Lansing and Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. One of the most interesting objects found inside this box was a large roll of what could be described as either money or uncashed liberty bonds from World War I. It's unclear if Kehoe had even known about these funds if, or if they would even be enough to clear their debt at their current value. Kehoe had also girdled the trees, which is used to control the overgrowth of trees or help take down a tree faster if it's needed. Along with this, he would also cut the grapevines down at their base so and place them back as if nothing was wrong with them. He took special care to make sure that nothing could be saved. Kit and Champion, the two horses he originally tried to sell to his neighbors, were burned to nothing but bones inside of what was left of the barn as Kehoe had tied their legs together so they could not escape the flames. Law enforcement officers would find Kehoe's last words stenciled on a piece of wood attached to the fence along the property reading, Criminals are made, not born. In the following days, it was estimated that over 100,000 cars traveled through Bath to see the destruction. Postcards would be made and sold with a crudely drawn picture of Andrew Kehoe on them with a picture of the front half of his truck as the main focus. A creamery from Lansing would also come into Bath, Michigan in a macabre opportunity to sell ice cream to residents and the, to the curious as well, and it was a hit and more likely a morale booster for the residents of Bath. Traffic would get so bad by that Sunday it would be stretched out to 9 miles outside of Bath. Michigan State Police finally had to turn the curious away as it made it impossible for American Red Cross workers to make it into Bath with a, even with a police escort. Outside of Bath, Michigan, the world would quickly come to know about the Bath Township disaster due to newspapers flying in their photographers and news reporters in, in nearby fields surrounding Bath, Michigan. 
and as fast as the world would know about it, it would be swept away to the second page of newspapers due to Charles Lindbergh completing his transatlantic solo flight on May 20th, 1927, two days later. In the summer of that same year, life still had to go on, and along with this, so did the cleanup with the school. Almost exactly two months later, an additional 200 pounds of dynamite would be found by cleanup workers. But now, with the school in ruins, the children of Bath no longer have a school to attend next year. The City of Lansing, Michigan School Board would offer education free of charge to the families of Bath, which they politely turned down. Bath would not only be, be a community, but you could say it became a family on May 18, 1927. That fall, the children of Bath would return to school on September 5th, but their classes would be held in various buildings throughout the community. Classes were held in a grocery store, the town's drugstore, firehouse, barbershop, barns, homes, garages, offices, and even the community hall months before that their classmates would be held for to their families to claim when it was a temporary morgue. William Cressman would recall in an interview about attending his classes in the town's grocery store. Getting to class was simple. Enter the store, walk around the pickle barrels and rows of dry goods, and take a seat and begin learning. But on a windy day in the middle of a lesson, the classroom door would slam shut. It made a loud bang like dynamite. I instinctively ran for the door, my legs pumping furiously as hard as they could. I don't know how I got out of the building, but somehow I did and I was safe outside. When I was catching my breath, I turned around and the store was still intact. I later realized when the door made that sound, everyone else bolted out of there. Also, the same fall reconstruction would begin on the north wing after it was demolished and removed. Lansing architect Warren Holmes would donate the plans for the rebuild and be approved by the school board on September 14, 1927. The following day, Senator James Cowson presented the people of Bath with a personal check of $75,000, equaling out to $1.3 million today in 2023, for the construction fund for the new school. August 18th, the following year, Bath Consolidated School would be now known as the James Cowson Agricultural School. The newly rebuilt school would be used until it was no longer suited for the needs of Bath Township in 1975. Until 1975, when Bath Township would switch over to their, a newer building, you would be greeted by a silent visitor, a bronze girl with a cat tucked under her arm, and she would be a representation of all children, the face of the future, and a rebirth of hope and resilience. This bronze statue is created in the memory of the children that were lost and can still be seen today when you visit the Bath School Museum in Bath Middle School across the street where the original Bath Consolidated School once stood. This statue was paid for by the school children of Michigan by sending pennies to the University of Michigan where it is created by sculptor Carlton W. Angel. The graduating class of 1927 would finally receive their diplomas in their commencement ceremony with the class of 1977, 50 years later after they were supposed to graduate the first time. This same year, the grounds where the school once stood would be dedicated as the James J. Cowson Memorial Park, dedicated to the the victims of the Bath Township disaster. Currently, there are plans to redevelop the park focusing on the victims of May 18, 1927 with a, with a more permanent exhibition of the school's history and disaster. With the cupola reaching almost 100 years old, the Bath Museum community is wanting to bring it indoors to preserve it for generations to come. The building's exterior will also match the original Bath Consolidated Schoolhouse. 
In memory of those that are lost, Sarah is going to read you each of the names of those lost because of this tragedy. Eight-year-old Arnold V. Bowerly, 14-year-old Henry Bergen, 11-year-old Herman Bergen, 11-year-old Emily M. Bromant, 12-year-old Robert F. Bromant, 12-year-old Floyd E. Burnett, 8-year-old Russell J. Chapman, 8-year-old F. Robert Cochran, 7-year-old Ralph A. Cushman, 11-year-old Earl E. Ewing, 10-year-old Catherine O'Foot, 9-year-old Marjorie Fritz, 9-year-old Carlisle W. Geisenhaver, 8-year-old George P. Hall Jr., 11-year-old Wilma M. Hall, 12-year-old Iola I. Hart, 11-year-old Percy E. Hart, 8-year-old Vivian O. Hart, 30-year-old teacher Blanche E. Hart, 12-year-old Galand L. Hart, 9-year-old Lavere R. Hart, 12-year-old Stanley H. Hart, 13-year-old Francis O. Hopner, 13-year-old Cecil L. Hunter, 8-year-old Doris E. Johns, 8-year-old Thelma I. McDonald, 13-year-old Clarence W. McFerrin, 8-year-old J. Emerson Medkoff, 13-year-old Emma A. Nichols, 12-year-old Richard D. Richardson, 12-year-old Elsie M. Robb, 10-year-old Pauline M. Schertz, 20-year-old teacher Hazel I. Weatherby, 10-year-old Elizabeth J. Witchell, 9-year-old Lucille J. Witchell, 8-year-old Harold L. Woodman, 10-year-old George O. Zimmerman, 12-year-old Lloyd Zimmerman, 8-year-old G. Cleo Clayton, 33-year-old Superintendent Emery E. Huck, 74-year-old retired farmer Nelson McFerrin, 33-year-old postmaster Glenn O. Smith, three months after this tragedy, 10-year-old Beatrice P. Gibbs succumbed to complications from surgery caused by this event. Today, if you look closely through the grass in the park where the families of Bath now gather in celebration instead of mourning as they wait for the notice of their children, and the sounds of children laughing is now filling the air instead of those crying in pain, you can still see the foundation where the school once stood like a scar that has healed.